Merry Christmas. It's good to see all of you. I know there's not a lot of snow, but whatever, you know. Um, I was planning to do this whole sermon part from the back of a camel to go along with the camels moving towards the oasis, but the camel got COVID, so I'm sorry I can't. He has to be in—he's in sequestration in my office for 14 days, which is a little awkward. Um, so one of the—there's th- there's two kind of paradoxes that, um, that Christians talk a lot about at Christmas time about the coming of Christ. One is the paradox of his being, right? That very God became very man, right? That, that true God became true humanity um, in a way that is kind of difficult for us to get our heads around. And so um, Jesus didn't have to do anything. All he had to do is become a human baby, and that was sufficient for this paradox to obtain, right? And we talk about that a lot, right? In, at Christmas time, we talk about um, God becoming man for our salvation. There's another paradox we don't talk about quite as much, but it still shows up in our liturgies and in our songs and in how we talk about Christmas and how we talk about Jesus. And that's um, the difference in Jesus' status, that, that Jesus was the ultimate somebody who became sort of the ultimate nobody, right? And you see that with like a way in a manger and all kinds of— like it's a silent night, but the angels are singing. There's this kind of like contrast of, of like that, that the one who is truly God in the highest— in all possibilities of status kind of became the, the bottom of everything. And because of that, what that means is, is that as we work our way through Christmas, as we work our way through these messages, and like what, what it means to know Christ, what, what kind of comes up over and over again is, is that Jesus um, is a perfect nobody to save nobodies, right? Um, sorry, somebody left me a bunch of stickers up here. Uh, It, it was God's intention. So, so, I mean, think about this. Did the Savior, very God becoming very humanity, did that human being have to be a nobody? Couldn't, couldn't the Messiah have been a king, or couldn't the Messiah have been rich, or couldn't the Messiah have been tall and handsome, or couldn't the Messiah have been all the kinds of things that we human beings normally think of as that which creates, like, status? And it couldn't he have been those things and still died for our sins? And couldn't he have been those things, and maybe more people would have listened to him? Maybe more people could have been saved. Right? Like, wh- why, why this race to the bottom, right? And I think, that, I think the reason is because Jesus said that one of the glories of his coming was that the good news would be preached to the poor. That is, that if he was of higher status so that more people would listen to him, the more lower status you are, either of spirit or of practicality, the less you would think he was talking to you. And it seems to have been a higher priority to our Savior and Lord that everybody would have the right to really actually believe that he was talking to them than that he would be a big enough shot that people would actually listen to him. Do you know what I mean? Um, sometimes we don't really put together how much of a nobody Jesus the Christ made himself to be or was born to be, Right? There's this place in the Gospels where Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders, and they say to him, we are the sons of Abraham, not the sons of fornication. The reason why they could spit that in his face was because his mother clearly had him too soon. Now, we, we know the story that Mary didn't do anything wrong, but you can imagine that, like, like the angel didn't appear to all of Nazareth or all of Israel. It just—Gabriel just came to her, 
and then left her to deal with all the social baggage that came from the fact that she didn't— if you counted months, there weren't enough between her engagement, much less her marriage, and when Jesus was born, right? When Jesus is, um, is brought to the temple to be— um, for, for sacrifice and purification, his parents offer two doves, which instead of a lamb, which was the sacrifice of poverty, which meant his parents were kind of working poor, right? Um, it says in Isaiah 53, prophesying about Jesus coming 700 years later, that there would be n- no earthly thing that would draw us to him, right? Like, it's, it's kind of funny that, like, almost everybody who tries to paint Mary, or anytime she gets animated in a movie or cast in a TV show, she's always pretty. You know what I mean? It's like you can't help but make Mary pretty, right? Why? Why couldn't have Mary been the ugliest girl in Nazareth? Right? Who cares? God doesn't care about that stuff. He he found the godliest girl in Nazareth. Right? Mary wasn't pretty. Why would she be pretty? Who cares about that? We're the ones who care about that, not God. And Jesus probably wasn't pretty. I mean, Jesus is always kind of handsome too, right? And you're like, how do you— I mean, people, I mean, people get so upset about Jesus being white in paintings of Jesus. Is that the most offensive thing? Or is that he's handsome in every picture? Right? Like, there's, there's nothing about him, right? And then he lived among a racially and politically exploited people. Like, he knew what it meant to live under oppression. And there's also no safety net. Like, if, like when is the most—if you're a woman, what's the most vulnerable moment of your life in a lot of ways, right? It's like when you're literally squeezing a baby out of your uterus— And at that moment, you're going to cash in all the safety nets you could possibly have. And the reason why Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem is because both of them, but particularly Joseph, was of the line and lineage of David, meaning that he had family there. Like his extended family was from Bethlehem. That's why he had to go back to Bethlehem to register. And in this town where his extended family is supposed to be, there is nobody to take him and his pregnant wife in the very night where she has a baby. Like, we get all worked up about like, well, you know, if there was an inn, somebody should have been like, I'll give that woman my room. Well, maybe, but most inns had like three rooms, right? But it was more like Airbnb back then. Like, people just like rented out with the extra room. It wasn't like there was a lot of inns. But the point is like, they didn't have family to go to. There wasn't a distant cousin. There wasn't somebody. They didn't have any. They didn't, like, I'm thinking about like, if my wife was pregnant, how many people could I go to and find a place? And it's like dozens. And they didn't have anybody in the town of their own tribal ancestry. And then they lived in Nazareth, which was considered the most backward, rural backwater you could possibly live in. I mean, don't—I mean, this isn't like, you know, let's go buy some hunting land there, baby. It's, a, it's like it's a nice little small town. We could vacation there. Let's go to Viroqua. Like, Nazareth was not Viroqua, okay? This is like the place where, like, they, the, the folks there weren't just a little racist, and they, they might have put Mountain Dew in the bo- bottles when they fed their babies, and, and like, it was like the most backward place you could possibly imagine. And that's where Jesus was from. Like, I don't know if you know this, but it says in the book of Matthew that the Messiah, Matthew says, it says in the Old Testament, the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. Now, if you know this, the Old Testament says that nowhere in the prophets. So why does Matthew say the prophets said that the Messiah would be a Nazarene? And the answer is is that everywhere in the Old Testament where the Messiah is talked about, where his first ministry is talked about, his nobodiness is talked about, that people would despise him, that people wouldn't care about him, that people would kill him, that he would never have a wife and children, that like all these, he would not be respected right? And so Matthew says, you see, everywhere it says he would be a Nazarene. The the fact that he grew up in Nazareth, 
embodied as a metaphor of location everything we find out in all the prophets about Jesus, about how people would treat him. The prophets basically said he would be a Nazarene. Right? He had to run to Egypt just for his life to be saved. His parents were refugees. Right? And also, there were, I mean, Jesus had traumatic personal tragedies. Look, we don't tend to think of this because, of course, Jesus was psychologically perfect, and so nothing really hurt his feelings, right? But, but by the time Jesus gets to the cross, it's extremely likely that Joseph, his, his father has died, his earthly father has died, because he, ge- he gives John to his mother and says, basically tells her to take care of him and her to take care of him, right? Vice versa. But also, like, I mean, sometimes we don't think this. His cousin was murdered as a political prisoner by Herod. John the Baptist was his cousin, his first cousin. Like one of the most supportive people in his life. The person who baptized him in the Jordan River. The person said that you have to become more Jesus and I have to become less. Like the person who paved the way for him and laid everything out for him and drew people to listen to him in the first place and to baptize people into a baptism of repentance. Like the person that he, Jesus probably looked up to in his human self as he grew up as a kid. John the Baptist was arrested and then beheaded and murdered by a vicious government, and he could do nothing about it. Like, he'd experienced that in his life. Real tragedy, right? It says in Isaiah 53, he had, you know, no inheritance, no wife and children. And when you get to the end, I mean, we talk about, um, we talk about the very end of Jesus' life. Like, how much— what did he really have to his name? The answer is, they st- to crucify people, they stripped them naked, right? The, the only piece of clothing that was worth a penny that Jesus had, the guards threw dice for to decide who got to get it because he wouldn't need it anymore. When Jesus died, he lit- literally did not have a dollar to his name. You understand? He, Jesus didn't just suffer a little bit. He didn't just, like, he just w- wasn't not just a king. Like, he literally aced the very basement of being a nobody. There just isn't anybody who's more of a nobody than him. And the purpose of this is, is that God wanted you to realize, he wanted us all to realize that Jesus is the perfect nobody to save nobodies. Right? Now, um, that message that Jesus is trying to tell us that there's nobody status-wise beneath his interest. Because that's, that's generally, if, if people who are nobodies don't turn to Jesus. That's, that's one of the main reasons. They just, they just have learned that they don't matter. And so they assume that if God is at the highest point of status that you could possibly be at, and I don't matter to anybody else, I certainly don't matter to him. And so the preacher can stand up there, and you can read the Bible, and we can go to this, and we can do that, and all these things can happen. And everybody can say that God loves everybody, that God loves me, but God doesn't love me. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. I'm at the bottom. Nobody cares about the people at the bottom. Can't you see, by the way, we do everything? Nobody cares about the people at the bottom. And the whole point of Jesus racing to the bottom was so that everybody from the bottom up could know that he really did care about them. That what he said was for them, and that what he did was for them. All right? Now, essentially there's two possible human reactions that we can have to this, right? Um, one is, like, when you hear that, Jesus is a perfect nobody to save nobodies. You can be like, that really does something for me. I like that. I mean, you just, you can feel it in your heart. You'd be like, that's, man, I feel like that's for me. Like, and you believe Jesus is real, and you believe that he died for your sins, and you believe that, like, in a way you're a nobody, and in a way you're a somebody, and, like, the nobody part of you is just kind of like, yes, like, I'm a somebody because he cares about me, not just because I'm, like, a somebody in this world. And, like, 
Yes, right? That's why Christmas is so awesome. I'm not talking to you. You're fantastic. Okay, keep going, right? The other reaction that you can have is that, like, that doesn't really—it doesn't do anything for me, Pastor. You know, like, yeah, okay, get up there. You know, maybe if you wore a better sweater or something like that, it would do something for me. But, um, you know, I hear you say that, and on one level, I know that's the Christmas message, and, you know, whatever. But, like, it just doesn't do anything for me, kind of on the emotional level, you know? Now, if that's the case, let me make this a little bit more complicated. Um, I think there's, like, three possible reasons for that. Why Jesus being the perfect nobody saved nobody's— might not do, anything for, not do anything for you, you know? The first is, is that you just don't believe in Jesus, that Jesus is real. That's possible. I think that's fewer people than would think. Because I think some people say, look, Nick, you sit there, you talk about Jesus, you say that stuff, and I don't feel anything, nothing happens inside of me, and so I guess I just don't believe in Jesus. Not, not really. Now, it might be that. And maybe you need to find out more about the, the historical um, arguments or philosophy that, that Jesus really— was born, and he lived, and he was who he said he was, and there's good reason to believe that, and you could believe you might, you might not have grappled with that. But sometimes when people just don't feel what they think they're supposed to feel, they assume that they just, there's something about them, they're just not the kind of person who believes. But that's not really why it doesn't do anything for you. There's a lot of reasons why things don't do things for us emotionally. You see, I know, I know that for some of you, it's actually because when I say Jesus is the perfect nobody to save nobody's, in your mind, in a way, you wouldn't—you wouldn't say it this way, and you probably wouldn't admit this isn't your official position. You actually think you're—you really are beneath the nobodies. That whatever the basement is, you're buried below that. I mean, I've, I've met people like this, like, no, and no matter what you can possibly say, it just—there's something in their mind that just clicks off, and they're like, this doesn't apply to me. Like, right? And you've seen this, and these people often will show really amazing compassion for other people. And then they'll act and behave and feel like it doesn't apply to them. Have you seen this? Have you done this yourself? Where like somebody, does there, you could, you, somebody, somebody's, somebody's really hurt or they're, or they're suffering or they're discouraged and you realize that God would, has a lot of compassion for them. And you're like, God has so much compassion for you. Like, I have compassion for you. I love you. You're going to be fine, right? And then you like take your hat and umbrella and you walk away and you're like, I'm, and you just feel terrible yourself. And it never occurs to you that God wants to have compassion on you because there's something going on inside of you that just goes, I'm below whatever that is, or it doesn't apply to me. It's way more people than we think it is. Way more often than we would like to imagine. And one of the reasons why Jesus is the perfect nobody to save nobodies is because if you really do feel that way about Jesus, what that tells you is that there is an emotional hurt in you that is keeping you from receiving what God has for you that needs to be healed. And it's holding you back. And, and what you really need is a spiritual and emotional guide, somebody who can walk with you and help you heal, because the problem is not that Jesus isn't real. And the problem is not that you really are more of a nobody than Jesus. You're not. It's actually pretty arrogant to think that you are. So then why can't you feel it? And it's because there's something inside you that blocks it. And you need somebody to guide you out of that in God's compassion and his love and through a process of healing so that you really can receive emotionally so that when you hear Jesus is the nobody for you, it does something for you. You can become emotionally alive in it. The second thing, and, this, and all three of these can go together or just two and three can go together, is that the reason we don't, we don't, it doesn't do anything for me when I, when I hear Jesus, the nobody, is the perfect savior for nobodies, I go, okay, that's great. And the reason it doesn't do anything for me is because I think I'm a somebody. You know? 
I'm not in that category. I don't need that. Like, that's, that's great. I'm glad that for all those nobodies in the world, which I am not, that God cares about them and Jesus is for them. That's fantastic. That means I don't have to worry about them as much and I can keep focused on being a somebody. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's how sometimes we, we sort of implicitly think. But one of the things we need to recognize as well is, is that Jesus is the perfect nobody for people who are, think they're somebodies. You know? Now, you might think that I should have said it poetically the other way. Not only is Jesus the perfect nobody for nobodies, but he's the perfect somebody for somebodies. Nope. He's the perfect nobody for somebodies. If you think you're a somebody, what you need is a nobody who can tell you what you really are. You need a nobody. You don't need a somebody. You, you're already a somebody. Or so you think. You know? There's this place in the Gospels where Jesus is kind of upset at the religious leaders, all the religious and, non, and semi-religious people who really think they're a somebody. And he says to them this really offensive thing. He says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go work today in the vineyard. I will not, his son answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. And then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he said, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of these two did what his father wanted? The first they answered, right? And then Jesus says this, because Jesus always has to ruin it, right? He says, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did, and even after you saw this, you didn't repent and believe him. See what he's saying? He, he's, he's intentionally, the way he's the perfect nobody for somebody is that what somebody's need is to be contradicted. We need to be contradicted by a nobody in our passion to be somebody's, or we'll miss him. That's what he's saying to these people. He's saying, he's saying see, if, if you don't understand what's happening, if you don't understand what it, what, how to be loved by God, how to be redeemed by God, what will happen is you'll just keep on striving right past the truth. And you won't realize you've missed it. And even when I come as a perfect nobody to nobodies, and even when those nobodies turn around and you see some of the, the most egregious thieves and some of the worst prostitutes transformed, it, even then it won't get your attention. You'll just be like, oh, that's nice for those people. And you'll just keep going because you can't be slowed down in your pursuit of being a somebody. And it'll destroy you. It'll destroy you. And so— um, there's like 67 ways Jesus does this. But let me just give you four really quick, okay? And I say this, and I can see all four of these in my life this week. Right? I mean, we can, as religious people, talk about this stuff a, a million times. Um, and until we believe it and do it, it's not going to make any difference. Do you understand? So I'm sorry I'm not funny or whatever, but like none of that matters. What matters, and it doesn't even matter what I'm saying right now. What matters is whether or not you will believe it, and then you'll do it. You know, we're way more educated than we are obedient. So one is, is just that he contradicts the Id idolatry of feverish competition. I mean, you and I both know there can only be so many winners at each level of winning. And at each level of winning, the number of people who can win becomes fewer, right? Unless we can come up with like exponential economic expansion, right? Um, and, you know, all the guys are competing for— similar girls, and everybody wants to be the star on the sports team, and who's going to be the this, and am I going to be the that? And there's this sort of—and you, 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 you feel like, like, if I don't get in the competition, not only will I not move ahead 
and will I not win, but I'll actually get pushed further back. And if you're not in the game, you're going to lose the game. If you're not paddling up river, you're not just going to stay in the same place. You're going to flow down river. And the, the, the terror of that, the fear of missing out, the, the, the fear that you're not going to get what's yours, the fear that you're just going to— like, it's, it's terrifying, and it's feverish. And Jesus is like, and Jesus just doesn't play. Like, like uh, into the scene of human life steps this nobody who just doesn't care. And you like, you pick up a Bible, you start reading, you're like flipping through, and you're just watching Jesus behave. And you're like, he just doesn't care. He doesn't care about money. He doesn't care who approves of him. He doesn't care what they like. He doesn't care how they behave. He doesn't care if, if like he shouldn't talk to that person or if he should talk to this person. He talks to low-class people he shouldn't talk to. He talks to upper-class people he shouldn't talk to. He talks to the people that he's upset with, and he just, he just does whatever he thinks is right. He just walks around pleasing the Father, caring about virtually nothing else, not even apparently food half of the time, because his apostles seem to be perpetually hungry, right? He's like, yeah, I'm not really that interested. And see, the whole point of this is, is that we're supposed to look at Jesus, the perfect nobody, and realize he's contradicting our feverish competition for everything. You understand? He's trying to help us. Same thing for our compulsive consumption, right? Like, not only do we want to, like, try to be a somebody, we want to feel like a somebody. And what makes us feel like a somebody than, like, a nicer vacation or, like, leather seats in that car or, like, take, going, taking ourselves out for a nice drink or something. Like, like, something that, like, makes us— Like, in all this feverish consumption, this buying and buying and using and using and throwing away, that consumes so much of our lives and our interest and our attention, like, it— you look at Jesus and he just like, he, I mean, he's like, he's picking his toenails. He just doesn't care. He doesn't have a thing to his name. He's got like one outfit. I mean, he probably doesn't even have a loofah. You know what I'm saying? This guy's like totally out of touch with like what assembly lines should be able to produce. Now, and I'm not saying like any of this stuff is bad, but the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 7 is this. Hold everything in this earth like it's not yours to keep. I mean, do you believe that your car belongs to God, or do you believe it belongs to you? Right? Because if you believe it belongs to God, somebody's probably going to wreck it. You know what I mean? Or they're going to leave their, a cigarette in it. Can you imagine? Because <gasps> you lend it to somebody who, like, they didn't treat it like they should have if they were properly competing for the top, you know? But, like, if you think it's yours, it's a bigger problem. You think it's yours! And then you'll hold it like it's not yours to give. And it, like it's not your—like it is yours to keep. Right? And then there's other versions. Like part of what traps us all in the fear of missing out and the idea that we only live once and we just got to go for it is just like all the trappings of what you're, quote, supposed to do. Well, if you don't put your kid in that sports program, they won't develop properly. You know? Right? I mean, there's— it's, uh, there's so many examples of the way we raise our kids, but it's just everywhere. It's just like, you're, so, you're expected to blank. Get a house in that neighborhood. Make sure you kid, you send your kid to that school. Do this thing. Wear those clothes. I mean, like, and on and on it goes. Who cares? Like, you, you look at Jesus, this perfect nobody, and he just doesn't care. Like, somebody's like, are you going to pay your taxes? He's like, oh yeah. Peter, go catch a couple of fish. There'll probably be a coin in there. You know, like, or like, what do you think about the government? I, I don't really care. Like, I, I'm, I'm much more interested in what the, you do with the image stamped on you, which is the image of God, not the image of the state. Like, and he just goes on with this stuff, and you're like, Jesus, don't you get— and he's like, he just doesn't care. Like, 
We could all use a lot more I don't care. Right? And I'm, at least if you're a teenager, I'm not telling you to be more apathetic. I'm just saying, like, we, so many of us care about so many things that we need a perfect nobody to save us from, or we're going to be strangled by trying to be a somebody. And even when we want to be better people and we want to be closer to God, we still act sometimes like the harder and faster we go, the higher we're going to go. And grace is all about a hot air balloon, not an airplane. Like he, he'll lift you up. You got to stop. Wait. Meditate. Pray. All the kinds of things that seem like they're holding you back. Not good uses of your time. What does this get me? Most of your spiritual disciplines should feel like a waste of time in the part of your mind that's whipping around with the feverish ideas of worldliness. And in all these ways, listen, it's the nobodiness of Jesus that saves you from being a somebody. There's only three ways a human being can be a somebody. There's only three ways. And it's none of the ways you act like you think. One, you could be a somebody if God cares about you. If the being of the highest possible cosmic status cares about you, you're a somebody. Right? And you already have that. All you have to do is receive it. Right? The second is, is that you're actually made in the image of the being that is of ultimate status. And you have that. Just like everybody else, you're special. Right? And the third thing is, the only mark of status in the cosmos that God cares about is godliness. How much in character are you like him and like his son? That's it. That's it. Those are the somebodies. That's the somebodiness that's real. And that's the somebodiness that Jesus demanded all the cosmos acknowledge when he was born as the perfect nobody towards everything else. Jesus is the perfect loved one of God. Jesus is the perfect image bearer. And Jesus is the magnificently, beautifully godly one who does everything that are the purposes of his own father. He is the human being of perfect status, who was the perfect nobody. And so what I want to encourage you to do right now, as we sing, and as you live out Christmas, I don't, you don't have to throw away all your presents, okay? You just have to realize they're nothing. They're nothing. They don't matter. They, they have nothing to do with anything that matters. Other than that they're a gesture given to you of somebody you love. Right? But as, as people, we need to realize that the, what this season is about, what Advent and then the 12 days of Christmas, what they're all about is for the perfect nobody, not just to save every nobody. He's come to save every nobody. Problem is, is that probably eight-ninths of the people in this room think they're somebody. And Jesus, the perfect nobody, came to save you too. But mostly to mess with us, to save us, to contradict us, to jostle us, but ultimately, friends, to free us. To free us. Let's pray. God, we pray that as we celebrate um, your coming after a long period of waiting, that we would recognize in this second paradox that you're the perfect nobody to save the nobodies of this world. And on one level, we all should be poor in spirit and know that we desperately need you and are the nobody you've come to save. But help us too in the places where we're really worldly and selfish and self-centered, where we really think we're somebody's. 
Help us to be the kind of people who can be contradicted in those things and set free by your stern warning. And so that we'll rejoice that tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners are entering the kingdom of God before us, that they had better sense than us. And help that to free us so that we can be like that young man who, when he told us to go work, we said no. We realized a little later that that was wrong. And then we turned and followed you. Help us to do that. This night, this holiday, this year, and on. In Jesus' name.